Welcome to the show, Susan Waldman. We have one of the greatest voices in, I'd say, radio history, in my opinion, <laughs> and broadcasting history, because we can't group you in any category here. It's fair to put you in an all category, as she is one half of the voice of the New York Yankees. Susan Waldman, how are you? I'm terrific. Now, did you know that I used to broadcast basketball for St. John's? No, I did not. See that? Louis was, I think it was Louis's last year coaching, maybe two years, and then Brian came in after him. Yeah, I used to do, um, I did it with David Halberstand for a few years, long before you were born, but I loved it. So I, the campus probably doesn't look the same as when I was driving to those games at the gym, but I loved it over there, and I loved Coach Louis, and I, I loved that. I loved doing that. I think yes. everybody's retired, though, now. Oh, yeah, and C Coach Louis's <laughs> probably one of the nicest people that you ever dealt with of all time. Absolutely, because, you know, I was in theater before I did this, and he used to refer to me as the opera singer. And I used to say, no, 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 Louie, it's, it's, it's Broadway. He said, no, oh, you're an opera singer. Anyway, I, I loved it. It was great, great times. I had a great yes. time out there. Yeah, St. John's is, I never knew that, so I'm sure the people listening are stoked to hear that. It's a, it's a long time ago, boy. It was just when I started. It was in the 90s sometime, and I used to drive. I live out in Westchester, and I used to drive to Queens, and I just loved it. I loved the gym. I loved the whole um, I loved the whole atmosphere. I just thought it was just great. I had a wonderful, wonderful time. Yeah, that's probably the last time St. John's had a great coach, actually. <laughs> well, I don't know. There are people that would <laughs> disagree with you. You know, you have to have players, too. So Yeah, you do. You, you got that right. But you, you said that you wanted to get in the theater. That's right. You, you played Dulcinea. Dulcinea. Yeah. No, no. I was on Broadway for 15 years before I, I did this. I didn't come to New York to do this. I mean, yeah. there wasn't anything. When I came to New York, um, you know, I was I worked in theater and I was, you know, I was never famous. I always worked, though. And um, I had one show that I that I did all the time because uh, it's very difficult for a woman. There's one woman in it and not that many people could do it. And that was Man of La Mancha. And um, and there was always a need for for that. And um, yeah, and I, I bought my house with Man of La Mancha, actually. So, um, you know, it was a terrific time. And I did a lot of other shows, too. And I did a lot of um, nightclub work. And then as I started to get a little older, the music was changing and, you know, I wasn't changing with it. And I either I was going to be do revivals the rest of my life or start playing somebody's mother. And I figured I'd better find something else to do. And you know what, Max, the only other thing I really knew was sports. And I figured to myself, you know, I'm working working here and this is long before FAN and um, it was a friend of mine the late Ken Coleman he was the voice of the Boston Red Sox for years and years and years and in the mid 80s he said to me you know I got this friend and he's starting this this radio station W fan I don't know something they're going to have an all sports station he's got to meet you because sports was always I, that's how I kept saying I always you know I always went to sporting events and was really part of it and um, yeah and I went and I made him a tape and got a job and then it sort of changed changed my life but theater was my first love and that's why I came to New York and being from Massachusetts was it hard being a Yankee fan converting because I know if you really don't like the Yankees it's usually <laughs> you can't really like them ever well, that's, well, no, that's not true. I mean, that really isn't true. This is my job. I've been here a really long time yeah. now, <laughs> uh, but I, I grew up in, in Newton, Massachusetts, and I had my own season ticket to Fenway Park when I was three, and I, I loved the Red Sox. Of course, you, you love, um, you know, who you grew up watching, yeah. and when you go into, when you go into journalism, you become, 
you don't become fans of teams anymore. You become fans of people because it's your job. Yeah. And I don't know this whole thing about why you have to be a fan of a team to, to broadcast their games. I mean, the, the, do you know that the voice of the Boston Red Sox grew up in New Haven and was a Yankee fan? I mean, it, it's yeah. not, I don't know when this started, <laughs> but I've, I've been with the Yankees now. This is my 35th year. And, um, you know, I've ridden on the buses with them. And, you know, and, and I'm very, obviously very attached to this yeah. group. Not this group particularly, but, you know, the Yankee organization. And, uh, and Mr. Steinbrenner was very pivotal in, in my career. And um, I owe them a lot. And, you know, I think when you're a journalist, you stop being a fan. I mean, you, it makes my job easier, quite frankly, if they win. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> on the radio for four hours a day. They're losing. Hey, we're losing 14 to nothing. But isn't it a beautiful day? I mean, it's, it's, you have to be honest and you have to say it. But um, it's not being a fan. It's being a broadcaster, which is very, very, very different. Of course I want the Yankees to win. I mean, if yeah. any any broadcaster that says they don't want their own team to, to win is lying. It yeah. makes your job a lot easier. You know, if it's 14 to nothing, I could hear people clicking off the radio, and that you don't want to do. So no. um, there were there are f certain Yankee teams that will be part of my, my soul for the rest of my life and the people on those teams. And, you know, you don't forget that. Nick teams also. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's when I started covering the Knicks and doing pre and post. Rick Pitino was the coach. I mean, you don't think I love Mark Jackson? I mean, no. I've known Mark Jackson for her since he was a rookie. I loved his mother, uh, Mama Marie, we used to call her, sitting in the in the garden. Um, the, the, back then, you became part of it, and the people become part of your lives. It's not necessarily the teams, it's the people. You'll see. You'll see as you go on this career, you're, there are people that you're going to love and there are people that will be part of you forever. And then there are people that, you know, when they get traded, it's okay. Have a nice yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God you call the Yankees because if you call the Knicks, I think it would be a miserable time because it's, they have very few bright spots. Yeah, no, that this is tough. The ga that game has changed, and you know, and that's also you know, the, it's a it's a different game now than it was when um, when I was covering. And you know, you know, somebody had said about baseball now. Somebody said, "Well, this isn't your father's Yankees anymore." And I said, "Not my father's Yankees. It's not my Yankees. I don't know what they're doing." But you know, the games have changed, but you have to grow with it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Something that I was reading online when doing my research is that when you were at the fan, you were going through difficult times. People were trying to edit the tapes to make you sound worse than, than yeah. anything just well, to get they, you off the station. Well, there, this was, I was the only, I was always the only woman everywhere. And it was, um, and it was a nasty time. And, you know, and the, uh, and I used to get like used, I, I know it's, I used to get used condoms in the mail and feces in the mail. And um, in 89, I had my own police uh, detail at Yankee Stadium because someone was literally trying to kill me. And it's just an amazing thing. And, you know, you can handle that kind of stuff because there's a backlash. And, um, you know, not only did the person telling uh, the people on the air, telling fans about their Yankees and their Knicks, the woman, it was a woman and she had a Boston accent. So that, that also played into it, but it's not that fans you win over and they know, you know, they know if you're real or not in five minutes. And it wasn't, it wasn't that it was that, you know, I sat in Yankee stadium in the press box for a solid year in 87 when we went on the air nobody talked to me, none of the 
it was that's the the worst of it and um it was just a terrible time and people at the station would do things as you said to my tapes i would send back you know in those days you literally cut tape and you sent it back and and they would like i'd hear my interviews and there would things that would be moved and things that would be cut to make it sound like i was an idiot which by the way i wasn't um but it's either you you stay and you fight because there are people coming up behind you and I always had this feeling, Max, that if I ever quit and left, um, there wouldn't be a woman sitting in my seat. Wherever I was sitting, it, it was going to be a man replacing because they just say, see, she couldn't take it. She couldn't handle it. She couldn't do it. And so you just keep going. But it was a, a nasty time. You know how I just told you that I, there are people that are in my heart for yeah. being wonderful? There's the other people, too. So yes. <laughs> you know, I don't forget them either. So that, You use them that, as a dartboard. Yeah, no, no. It all comes around, though. I don't, you know, spend energy on it. But every once, every five or six years, someone will be standing in front of me and I'll get a chance to really destroy them. Oh, yeah. the and then, then, oh, yeah, remember what you did to me in 1988? Well, because of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so there we go. And, and thank God, because you are the first woman in sports full time. Right. To do it. To the do color it. commentator. They're there to do a major league team and, and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the, the basketball, it was a lot easier to do basketball. Nobody ever, um, I did, you know, when I was doing basketball commentary and a little play by play, I did the W WNBA for a while, way, way back when I first started and I did the NIT and I did a lot of college and there was never, never a problem in basketball with being a woman. I'm not quite sure what that is. There's a whole other thing that goes along with that, but it was never a problem, but you know, you start doing Play by play for baseball and people come out of the woodwork, you know, don't want you. It's, it's not like that now. I see that there are a lot of really young, talented women coming up. It's taken two generations to skip, but are there are, I can name you six women that are in their 20s that are out doing play by play for minor league teams um, all over this country. So it's taken a very long time, but um, maybe it's starting to change. But you know what? It's not just, it's not just getting there. You have to stay there. I mean, I had a lot of chances, and I was the first. My first radio game actually was a Mets game. It was a Mets-Houston um, series in Houston in the 90s, 1992, at the old <laughs> at the, at the Astrodome. I went with Gary Cohen, and, and Bob Murphy didn't want to go to, to Houston, so I went. They thought it was a good idea. That was 1992. I didn't get my full-time radio job till 2005 that's a long time between i mean i did television and things in between there but it's it's not only getting the opportunity it's learning how to stay there and anybody that expects anybody male or female to come out on their first shot and be vin scully you, you know it's not going to happen it doesn't happen it took vin scully years to become vin scully and so it's that's the thing that happens with with women you have to be perfect because if you make a mistake it's in the paper so yeah it's men are rotten they can be very rotten oh you know what i think it's people i don't think that at all i yeah. don't think that about about men at all i think it's people and people that don't like change and people that um see maybe their job being taken away by a female and you know there i don't think there's a 
Um, I, I don't think there's an 18-year-old intern that doesn't, in the back of his mind, think he knows more about the Yankees than do I. He's wrong, but yeah. um, <laughs> it's just a thing. But I don't think, no, that's, you know, men are the most important, important thing in my life, pretty much, you know, as far as people are concerned. So, because that's all I've, that's all I've worked around is, is mostly. So it's not, it's not men. It's not, it's just people. People mm -hmm. are afraid. People don't like change. Something that would lead me to believe about the men thing too, is when I read the comments when Maggie Gray was hired for WFAN to do the, the, the afternoon drive, I saw the comments on Instagram. People were like, I don't need a woman telling me my sports. Well, I mean, see, but that's, but that's a certain type of person. It's yeah. not, you know, she's good. She, now she's there. I mean, it's like <laughs> you have to be the people don't, I think it's just people don't like change. And people don't like to admit that their um, longtime beliefs are incorrect. And that's, you know, if I've believed my whole life that the world is flat and somebody says, no, it's not, what, what does that mean for my life, what I've believed all these years? And I, and I don't think it's necessarily against women. I think it's protecting your own beliefs, which is, which is very different. And you don't want to make this a them against us thing because, you know, the more polarized everybody gets, um, the worse it is for everybody in every, every walk of life. It's not just women in sports. It's women, um, in as doctors, it's women as lawyers and the world is, you know, we're not living in 1872. We're not living in 1962 no. either, or it's, but it's, and so that's it. I think it's people that just don't want to change what their long held beliefs are. Mm -hmm. You're right. And we got to look back at Betty Kaywood and Mary Shane, because they played important roles in history for women. Well, um, Mary Shane, I, I, I did not know her, but Mary Shane is, is an example that I use a lot because Mary Shane, she was a writer and I don't know, I asked people in Chicago, was, was she any good? But to me, what they did to Mary Shane, they set her up to fail because when you are given, because I went through it too, um, 20 years later, but I went through it. And um, when you say, all right, you're going to give 20 games and that's it. And then they'll decide you can't change careers even if you've got the knowledge and she was a baseball writer she knew what she was talking about she covered the white Sox. she knew what she was talking about but you have to learn you have to learn vocal technique you have to learn how to be a broadcaster see that's something i never needed to do because i was an actress so it's a performer it's all performing and it's all the same thing but if you don't know how to do that i don't know how anybody expected her to be brilliant in 20 games, it, it doesn't happen. Nobody helped her. That's for darn sure. Yeah. And she had to, you have to do it yourself. And it's, it's hard to do if you're not given a shot. Um, and then that was the end of that. She did. I must admit, she was a terrific basketball writer, went to New England and worked for, uh, I think it was the Worcester Telegram and covered the Celtics. And that's where, that's where I had first heard of her. I didn't know about this, about the baseball thing. Um, but it's, that's women not being qualified to do the job they're hired to do, but are hired because they're women. And it never works. Never. What did you love most about being on TV? Because you were on WPIX, I believe, in the 90s. Well, I did a lot. I was yeah. in, 90, in 94. Um, the guy who runs the Yes Network now, John Filippelli, started a thing called the Baseball Network. And that was, it was, a, it was a, an idea. We worked for two years. Um, and I did a lot of national games that the Yankees were involved in. I loved, I loved television. Um, that was what you do is, 
like if the Yankees were playing the Texas Rangers, there would be a Yankee. I would be the Yankee announcer, and my first guy I worked with is a pitcher named Steve Busby, who at the time was the play-by-play announcer for the Texas Rangers, and we would work together. And it was it was a fabulous idea, and it was national but regional. And you, you, Monday night or Tuesday night was the baseball network. And when we went to Seattle, I would do the game with Dave Niehaus, the, the Hall of Famer. And it was it was great fun. It it should have worked, but it didn't. And I loved I love television. I, I prefer radio because I like the creating the picture. Um, in television, you are putting a caption on something that people can see. When you're in radio, you have to describe what's going on because the people cannot see, and it's a whole different skill set. Um, I did games for MSG and for WPIX and Fox 5 um, when they were on. You know, I loved television. I love radio. I prefer radio. That's where I belong, I think. (laughs) I think so, too. What's your opinion on how radio has changed over the years? Well, they tell me that it's dead. (laughs) Yeah, that's what what they tell me, even though I don't agree with that. I don't, you know, there's always going to be people that turn, I mean, I know I'm old and I don't, but I don't stream and think I want to get in my car and turn to the radio and hear the Yankee game or hear a game or whatever. Um, it has obviously, as they call it, terrestrial radio now. I didn't know that, but um, it is changing. And I guess people don't sit in the car and listen to radio. They download music or podcasts. I've never understood why anyone would listen to a podcast. Yeah, I don't either. It's something that's in the past and I don't get it at all. Um, but um, I, as long as there are people that um, are by themselves and want company and want a human connection, there's always going to be radio because you cannot get that connection um, on television. You really can't or streaming. And when you turn on the radio to listen to a talk show host or um, a baseball game, you are connecting with a human being. And that's why, um, that's why I don't think it'll, it'll ever die. It can change, but it'll, it'll always be there in some form. You also played an important part in stopping the feud between George Steinbrenner and Yogi Berra. Yeah, well, that was that was um, yeah, that was one of the best days I ever had. It turned out to be great. That, that took a lot. George Steinbrenner was was a very I was very close to George Steinbrenner, and um, I had never met Yogi Berra, and I didn't know. And Phil Rizzuto actually introduced me to Yogi Berra once. Actually, it was Mel Allen's funeral, and I and I couldn't even imagine because of course we all know and love Yogi Berra, um, and I had never met him, and. Um, the then program director of WFAN, this is 1999, had said, you know, Yogi Berra is uh, opening a museum in New Jersey, and we're going to broadcast there um, from his opening night, and you're going to do the show. And I said, okay, that'll be fine. And he said, wouldn't it be cool if you could have George and Yogi make up on the air? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he started talking about, you know, the 73 Mets. They were going to have them all there and that. And we do all this stuff. So George called me about something. And I said, all right, let me try this. So I said, George, you know, I want to talk to you about Yogi. And he said, what's wrong? And, you know, they hadn't talked in 14 years. And as soon as he said, what's wrong, I said to myself, okay, go for it. And I said, you know, I think this is time. It's time for you guys to make them. This is absolutely ridiculous. He said, all right, we'll do it during the season. I said, no, we have to do it now. And we have to do it on January, whatever it is, because I'm going to be, and he laughed and he said, all right, well, what do I have to do? I said, you have to come to New Jersey. This is January. You know, you have to come to New Jersey and 
he wants you to apologize. And, and he said, well, what does he want me to apologize for? And I said, I don't know, George, you did it. I have no idea. I wasn't there. So we, and I, I was trying to protect George because I didn't know Yogi. Mm -hmm. So I put this together. Dale Berra, Yogi's son and I were um, doing this on the phone. All mm -hmm. right, what if we do this? And what if we do that? And why did we do this? And we were going to do it on the, the show and he was going to come. Here was the thing. Well, we weren't allowed to tell anybody that it was going to happen. And, but meanwhile, I'm saying, all right, this is going to be okay. So I called, I called Ted Williams. I called Joe Garagiola. I called Bill White. I called everybody that was Yogi's friend, just in case it worked. We we're going to have them on. And I'm thinking, you know, if this doesn't work, I'm going to be stuck talking about the 73 Mets for three hours. And I have no idea what to talk about. So the night came and George comes and he flew in. And, uh, and, I, and I'm there by myself with Dale Barra and his brother, Tim. And George, they open the door and Yogi says to George, you're late. And George starts out, no, I'm not. I'm right on time. And they go into a room and I hear yelling. And I said, oh God, my career is over. Everything is over. And I'm going to have to talk to Ed Cranepool for three hours. And I have no idea what to ask him. And you know, we can talk about the 73 Mets. Okay. And then Carmen Barra. A beloved wonderful woman yogi's wife went in and the the yelling stops and they come out and they're arm in arm and i'm thinking oh god this is great and we sit down and we're in an empty auditorium in yogi's museum and this is just just opened and it's totally empty but there's probably 300 seats in the, in it we go on the air i said oh a very good evening everybody i'm susan waldman i am live at the brand new yogi Berra. Uh, mr Berra, you know mr steinbrenner mr steinbrenner you know mr Berra, right and they start laughing and we had everybody on but i'll tell you max the best thing within five minutes the back of the auditorium where there was a door, the doors kept opening. People heard it on the radio and were running in from the store, from the gym, people coming in with briefcases. They had gotten off the train and they hear the two of them talking to each other. And within a half an hour, that, that, um, there was no more room for anybody to sit in that auditorium. It was, uh, it was great. And I called in, Ted Williams was on and Joe Garagiola and everybody that we had, it was great. And then after about an hour George was getting a little fatigued and uh, he said we we're going back to the hotel it was really great and then of course I talked about the 73 vets but I was so excited about all of it that it didn't even matter um, so I get back to back I get back home and George is in, in the hotel and I call Mr. Steinbrenner and I say what what you think George and he said it was a wonderful night for the New York Yankees that he stopped because George was always very sarcastic with me. And he said, it wasn't too bad for you either, Waldman, was it? <laughs> so I, I said, no. But then Yogi and Carmen became some of my best friends. We'd go out together and I couldn't remember a, a time. We were out one place at the Carlisle seeing our, our good friend Steve Tyrell sing. And I said, you know, I can't remember a time when I didn't know you guys. And it, it wasn't like that. I mean, I had never met him until until 1999 so but then george george and yogi became you know really close again and yogi was always there you know showing he was always talking to people and you know you should have seen the players you'd have loved this you know because when joe joe tori and yogi were really good friends and so he would come and sit in joe's office and you'd see Posada running in and they'd be sitting and talking and all that stuff and when the yankees got 
Brian McCann. Remember that? Mm -hmm. They signed Brian McCann. Remember that. The first thing he wanted to know was, when's Yogi coming? When is Yogi (laughs) coming? And they would like to make a beeline to Joe's office when they heard Yogi was there. (coughs) Excuse me. It was just a wonderful time. Then he became like the maitre d' of the Yankees. And I just, I thought it was great. And I'm, I'm so happy for him that he got to enjoy that for the last years of his life. And that's important history as we get into other history. 2009 was an important year for the Yankees, but more importantly for you, as you were the first woman to call a World Series. I was indeed. And my scorecard is in the Hall of Fame and all mm-hmm. that. And it was, uh, you know, it's you, when you're, I'm always like the first <laughs> person <laughs> and you always get the feeling, believe me, I know who used to sit in that seat. I mean, I don't mean in that particular chair, but in, in that seat, I understand it. And I also understand that, if I mess up, someone's not going to get a chance. And that, that sort of drives you with that. So, so now it's not a big deal. I don't, well, it still is a big deal, but it's not, you know, now it, people expect to hear a women, uh, women. And the women that are out there now in the minor leagues, as I was talking about, they're in their 20s. They grew up listening to me. They grew up when they were tiny little girls turning on a radio and there was another girl on the radio. So they don't know that they can't do this. Because they, because there I was. So what do you mean I can't? It never enters your head. If you, if there's another woman doing, whether military, firefighter, whatever, if you see another person and it's a woman and you're a tiny little girl, no, it, you don't know that you can't do this because there she is. And that's, that's the, the, that's the good thing about all of this is that I might've been the first, but I sure am not going to be the last. No, you got that right. Do you remember the first time that you worked with John Sterling on the air. Do you remember that? I do, but it wasn't a game. Wow. In 1987, <laughs> this is when I met John Sterling. Um, 1987, when WFAN was on the air, I was hired to do afternoon updates from three to seven. And in those days, when the station went on the air, we did full five-minute updates. Don't forget, no computers, nothing. <laughs> it's rip and read off of a, you know, off of a ticker, which... And go, if you don't know what that is, everybody listening, go Google it, ticker. Um, and you know, you do an, a, an update. So you were wrong a lot because they were wrong. No computers. You did it all by yourself. And um, the man that they had hired to do afternoon drive for WFAN when it first started was a man named Pete Franklin. And he was from Cleveland and he was supposed to come, but he had a heart attack and he was in the hospital, so he didn't come. So they had different... Um, people every week and an all-star week july whatever when fan first went on the air there was john sterling the voice of the atlanta braves at the time and he did he used to do talk shows before he went to atlanta on mca here in new york he was a very good talk show host he was one of the beginning of the guys that told you you were stupid john sterling did it before any of these guys before john sterling did it in the <laughs> 70s he was telling you're an idiot slam um, so he would do that then so john came in and i was his update person 1987 <laughs> so i've known john sterling um, since then, and we were talking on the air because, you know, I'd have to sit there, I'd go do my update, but at 3.30 in the afternoon, scores don't change a lot. So we became friends. You know what I remember about that first week, Max? John did the entire show standing up. He would, like he, was, like he used to do his basketball games, stand up. They weren't at a table. He would stand up and he'd have a microphone up that was standing on the desk and it was high, like the old time announcers. 
with his little thing in his ear, and, and he would do that. And I thought it was the most fascinating thing I'd ever seen. He did a whole, an entire show for four hours standing up. But that's when we became friends. So in 89, when he joined the Yankees, we'd, we've known each other a really, really long time. So, yeah. It's, it's amazing that you guys established that great chemistry as you hear it on the air all the time. And that's why people love listening to you guys. What do you think is your, your favorite call of all time, especially his too, because he has all those catchphrases anytime the Yankees score a home run? Well, you know, it, when it started and now everybody wants him, that's why, you know, he didn't have from for everybody. It started with Bernie goes boom. And I thought, and it was during the playoffs, Bernie goes boom. And it was, it, I thought that was great. And then I loved, um, um, Georgie juiced one and I loved Cano don't you know and I loved an Avon from A-Rod but now people come into the team and they want to know what John's home run call is going to be for them you know I, I got to tell you a funny story because um, the wonderful Todd Frazier who was a Yankee for and I've known him forever obviously here and hopefully he brings home an Olympic gold um, but Todd Frazier I get home from Ryan Lamar's first game he hit a home run and there's a message on my voicemail and it's from todd and he said suze you gotta tell john he's gotta have a home run call for ryan lamar and he says how about lamar you're the best by far and, you know, and, and, and he said i'll talk to you later whatever and but i called john and i said Todd Frazier just called me. Why do you know why you don't have a home run call for Ryan Lamar? Johnson? Who knew he was on the team? I mean, but anyway, so now he has now he has a home run for everybody. But it's it it got to be he calls it a cottage industry because the players come and they want to know what the home run call is. The only one who didn't like his he changed his because Nick Swisher came came in and John at one point said. Something like jolly old Saint Nick. Well, Swish didn't like that. So we're on the uh, on the plane one night, and Swish comes back. He says, "John, I need another call. I, I don't like that." So that's how Swishalicious um, came up because because Swish didn't like jolly old Saint Nick. So um, I think since Bernie goes boom was the first one. Um, that's that's my favorite. Or you're on the mark to share. I remember that one. <laughs> He had a million of them that are great, and some of them, and the Candy Man for um, the Grandy Man, and a lot of them. Since I'm in theater, um, was in theater for all these years. A lot of them are obscure unless you're a theater person, and you know the. And he does, and I think they're wonderful. The Gio Urshela, the most happy fella, one of the most famous musicals of all time, is the most happy fella. It was 1957, and he sings, "I'm the most happy fella." And now, if you're not of a certain age and you're not not a Broadway person, you have no idea what he's doing, but I'm hoping that people Google it. I say it to so many people, Google most happy fellow, you'll find out all about it. Mm -hmm. And so he does it. And the people, people seem to love it. People absolutely seem to love it. And even when holiday was on the team, you're singing happy holidays, happy holidays. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they come through at an alarming rate here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so it's great. And speaking of singing, people know you for singing the national anthem back in the day, not even because you had the opportunity to perform the national anthem this year. Well, I did. I've done it twice this year, but, um, but one of the, um, the, how it started was in the 70s, when I was, it started, I was on tour with Man of La Mancha starring Richard Kiley, Google it, he was the original, um, and I didn't do matinees because Richard didn't do matinees, and whatever city we were in, we were out for almost two years with this tour, and off and on, and 
during, and I wanted to go to ball games. And in those days, nobody realized it was a way to get on television. I just wanted to go to a ball game. So I would call, for example, the first one I did was in Minneapolis in the old park, not even the dome. There was another park before that in Bloomington. And I called up the Minnesota Twins and I said, hi, this is Susan Waldman. I'm starring in Man of La Mancha. Do you need an anthem singer? And the guy said, Sure. Nobody sung the anthem here since the 50s. Sure. Go ahead. Whatever you want to do. They sent a car for me. And this was every place I went in 79. Every place I went, they sent a car. You were part of it. It was great. I got to uh, have lunch with the players. It was great, great, great stuff. I just wanted to go to ball games. Mm -hmm. All right. Then it turned out that, and I used to do it because I grew up in Boston. I would sing almost every opening day. I would find my way back to Boston and sing opening, opening day. In 79, we ended up in Pittsburgh in all of September and October. So I got to sing the anthem. That was the, that was the We Are Family team. And I would sing a couple of times a week. I would sing matinee days. And then I got to sing in the playoffs in the World Series. So that's how that had started. And a lot of this is all, it's all connected because um, when I sang that for, it was a Red Sox Minnesota game. I was sitting in the dugout talking to Jim Rice, just, you know, just talking. And he was telling me, it was in May, and he was telling me, and he was, had a great 78, if you remember, Jim Rice was on fire all the time. And he said, you know, I'm, I, I haven't seen a fastball in two months. And I said something like, so you're telling me that you're hitting 315 by accident. And he started, you know, laughing. And we talked about curveballs and what you have to do. And it was great. Well, there was a guy in back of me waiting to say hello to me. And he used to be the first baseman for the LA Dodgers. And I had never seen him before. And I've never seen him since. And his name was Wes Parker. But he had, he wanted to be in theater. And he wanted to do TV. And if you look at some old Brady Bunch reruns, Wes Parker is on those shows. Oh, well. wow. So um, he, I turned around, he introduced himself, and he, he and some people had gone to see Man of La Mancha the night before they were going, I guess. And he said, by the way, before we get into this, have you ever thought of doing this for a living? And I said, doing what for a living? And he said, well, if you could get Jim, I could never get Jim Rice to tell me about curveballs and what, you know, what he's seeing and why. And I said, oh, okay, that's great. Now, what can I do for you? And then we talked about theater and acting and stuff. And that was the last time I saw him, but it put something in my mind. And um, it was, it was just, uh, yeah, it was an interesting times because I was evolving. They were evolving the, um, the, uh, I'm sorry, my phone's Oh, no, it's perfectly fine. That's my, yeah. Yeah, that's a text. I was just making sure that nobody else was traded because <laughs> I have to keep up. Um, so I'm sorry, I shut it off. So um, that I was evolving, it was evolving, and but it put something in my mind. And I wish I could thank Wes Parker. I'm sure he's in LA somewhere, you know, but um, it's kind of cool. The whole thing was kind of cool. And speaking of important things in your career, Simmons College, graduating with a degree in economics. Mm-hmm. I did. And Simmons, Simmons just gave me an honorary doctorate. And this is why when the guy called me, I got it this year. And it was all, it was all, um, what do you call it? Virtual. It's on my wall here somewhere. I got a doctor of journalism. And this is when the, um, when the bursar or whatever it was that called me, the provost called me to tell me that we're giving you, this was supposed to happen last year before the pandemic. And I first thirds out of my mouth were, are you sure you've got the right person? Do you know about my checkered Simmons career? 
And he said, yeah, we know all about you. And let me tell you why I asked him that. This is the 60s. And Max, I was a little terror. I was, I didn't like having to be back in my dorm at 930 at night. Um, Simmons was um, across the street from Fenway Park. So I went every day. Um, I also sang in shows um, at Harvard and mostly at MIT. I was a special student at the New England Conservatory, but I didn't like the rules that Simmons had. I didn't like them at all. And so I was, I was on social probation a couple of times. Once I was uh, climbing over the wall at 11 o'clock at night because I was dating the captain of the Harvard track team and track meets are at night. So they caught me coming over the wall. I mean, this is this, is this early 60s. This is before we were trying to change things. Um, then I was doing, I, I majored in economics <laughs> so I wouldn't have to write any papers because it's math. <laughs> And either you knew it or you didn't. So that's why I chose economics. And um, the way my, my first year um, of economics, the first year there was a, a professor and he was reading out of a book. And um, I said to him, okay, if you can't, if you can't prepare a class every week, I can't be here and I'll see you at the final exam. So I would go to ball games and that, and then a, a friend of mine who was at MIT had said, you know, who's teaching economics here? Why don't you order um, Paul Samuelson, who, Google it, Paul Samuelson was one of the most famous and most brilliant economists of, in the world. He worked for many, many different presidents, but he was teaching at MIT. So I, they, Simmons did give me permission to go and audit. And uh, the second time I was on probation was that the dean called me in and said, Susan, you can't sing and go to class. And I said, well, I can sing and pass the exams. I, you never said anything about going to class. And she said, you have to make a choice. And I said, no, I do not. And when I am a big Broadway star, I am going to buy Simmons and turn it into a bowling alley. And I slammed the door and went out. I never left Simmons. I did graduate a degree in economics and math. It was a double embassy. And then you know, and so when they called me, <laughs> I just said, really? And he said, no, but then you realize, I'll tell you what I realized in that. And I know this is very long winded, but Simmons, they never kicked me out. They never really disciplined me. They let me do what I needed to do, but I, within their structure, I never left. I never did bad things, mm -hmm. um, but they let me push the limits but I think I could do that because they were there. It's like you being at St. John's. You can do whatever you want, but they're always going to be there. And they'll push back. Mm -hmm. That's how we learn to draw outside the lines. But as long as you can stay inside the lines when it matters. But you learn to push boundaries. So I, I learned that years ago. So that was that was one of the reasons that they gave me an honorary mm -hmm. doctorate in journalism. So um, it was it was kind of moving continued. You know, don't forget 60s. I was also back then working for Bobby Kennedy and we we're trying to do women's rights and we marched and all kinds of things. And, you know, that was a very turbulent time. Wow. And so it was um, it seems very um, innocent now mm -hmm. with what's going on now because things haven't changed all that much. But. No, I, I agree with you on that. It's going to hopefully it continues to change in the right way. And I think we have to get into this as this is probably one of the most touching moments in sports was when 9-11 happened. The Yankees, when they come back, they win their game. I'll tell you a story about 9-11 that um, um, I actually watched. I was going to work at that time on w at WFAN in the, in the, um, state the stadium. The studio was in Astoria mm -hmm. at the time. 
and um, I was doing 10 to 2 every with Jody McDonald. And so I'd leave my house at 7 in the morning. I live in Upper Westchester. And um, I was driving down, and um, I remember calling Don Imus. I got to where the Bruckner um, hits the Triborough. And so you can see Lower Manhattan. Um, there was a plane sticking in the side of, of the building, and the police were moving us over to the right. And there was a man next to me, and I can still see him. Um, he was next to me in a small blue car, and he had a brand muffin on his on his uh, console. And um, he was moving over, and, and we were all moving over. And we stopped there, and I called the station, and um, I actually saw the second plane hit the tower. And the second plane that came over from the right, as I was telling FAN, they've, uh, I don't know what's going on here. Um, some idiot went into the World Trade Center. We all thought some guy with a little plane had a heart attack. I mean, because you didn't know. It was, you oh. know, 8.30 in the morning. And then the second plane came over and I watched it go into the tower. And I, and they put me on the air with Don Imus because I was describing it. And I remember looking at that man next to me. And he looked and our eyes met. And I think of every year on 9-11, I think of that man. Where was he going? Did he get there? Was someone he knew in the building? Um, what, what happened? And I'll tell you the most touching moment of all. The Yankees were, I think it was the next day or so, um, the game was canceled that we're there. And, um, and the Yankees, Joe Torre got a bus together and we all went down to the World Trade, you know, that, that whole area there where people were waiting um, to find out about their loved ones. Nobody knew that they weren't going to find anybody then. It was way back. And you walked into this church and I remember Bernie Williams saying to Joe, um, what do I say to these people? And Joe said, you'll, you'll know. And they walk in and I, I get all choked up just thinking about it. And a woman is looking and she sees that you know, she's got a picture of whoever was lost there on her chest because they all had pictures of, you know, have you seen so-and-so? Um, and she sees that it's Bernie and she sees that the Yankees are there. And she walks up to Bernie and Bernie says, you look like you need a hug. And she started to cry. I'm going to start to cry again because I've never seen anything like it. Mm -hmm. And Bernie hugged her and they started talking. And I watched what just the presence of these men getting off a bus, the New York Yankees, being in that, it might have been a church, um, just being there with people talking to them, just the fact that these people that have just suffered the worst tragedy in their whole lives um, knew that the New York Yankees cared. Roger Clemens would show up at fire stations unannounced, just walk in. What can I do? Can, and they'd want to sit and talk. Can I bring you things? Do you need, um, can I raise money for, he just walked into fire stations all over Manhattan. Awesome. And, you know, people don't know a lot about that. I know about the game and I know it was very moving, but, you know, people were doing things all over the place. I remember, um, cause I was doing 10 to two all the time. And I remember hearing uh, somebody say on the radio, drive through neighborhoods. And if you see a church, if there's a fire, fire truck parked outside, that means it's a funeral for a fireman. Stop the car and go in. We don't want these people to think they're alone. And I did. I would just drive you know, to the stadium, but I would go in different neighborhoods in Astoria. And you know what, Max? Mm -hmm. 
There wasn't one church I went in that wasn't filled to the rafters with people, strangers, because everybody heard that. And every every time I could see it, every time there was a fire truck, everyone that was anywhere around, you, you see the cars pull into a parking space or into the lot of the church. And there wasn't one, I probably went to six or seven and they were just filled to the rafters. And I just felt, cause I heard, I said, we don't want them to feel like they're alone. Mm -hmm. And I hope that helped. I really hope that helped because you felt so helpless. Yeah. But sports was a big part in the healing process, especially when the Yankees came back, because that's why, because when you hear about it, the Yankees were out of town. So that's why everyone goes to the Mets game right, right away. Right. Well, I remember um, because Boston also, one of the planes that went into the tower was filled with Bostonians. Um, uh, there was a, uh, it was a, one of the department stores had had, uh, and I remember my, I knew a lot of people who knew people that were on that plane. It was filled with uh, um, 20 or 30 women that had come to New York for a convention. So Boston was hit by this too, and everybody knew people. And um, it was an amazing time to be in Fenway Park and to watch them um, you know, try to commemorate this. And, and, and should, the White Sox did a great job too. Mm -hmm. They do because I remember that. And then, you know, there, it, every place the Yankees went, um, it was very hard for them because every t every place the Yankees went for that month, uh, the city they were in wanted to do something. And so they had a uh, commemoration every single time and they'd have flags. I remember Ripken on one side and Roger Clemens on the other side. They just did it. Clemens did almost all of the, um, he was very into this and what he could do to help. And he was almost on one, always on one side and the biggest star of whoever the team was that they were playing. But it was very hard on the Yankees because they have to go through the emotion every single city they went to. And, you know, they were glad to do it and everybody was wonderful, but you could see that, you know, it, it took an emotional toll. And, you know, that would, that of course was, I, I thought there was no way, no way on earth that anyone would let the Yankees lose that World Series. I, you know, I thought right right till the end when I was preparing to go on the field um, <clears throat> that it was just meant to be because of because of that. But it was it was tough on them. It was tough. And I think that um, I know the Mets and Bobby Valentine and Piazza and the whole thing, and it's wonderful. And they're going to be a big part of that because it was New York. Um, but I am really looking forward to September 11th, the 20th anniversary. We are going to be at City Field. And that should be an extraordinary, extraordinary game. And I don't know what the Mets have in, have in store. And I don't know if they've, they've talked to the Yankees. They probably have. But that'll be a Saturday. It's that whole weekend. And I believe that the 11th is that Saturday. I'm, I'm pretty sure. But whatever it is, I, I know it's going to be extraordinary. It's going to be important. And speaking of other important times in New York Yankee history was when Derek Jeter retired, calling that last game. That was probably one of the most important games ever that you ever called because this is, this is it. This was his last game in Yankee Stadium, in 2014. Well, you know what? I am proud. In the on my wall in back of me, I have a picture. I was his last interview. I waited till everybody was done, and we were in. You mean the one at Fenway Park, mm -hmm. right? Or you mean the one at Yankee Stadium? His the one at Yankee Stadium. The one at Yankee Stadium because we went to Boston. He finished. That's it. right. Mm -hmm. And we, the one, well, that was unbelievable because, because of how it happened, because they had had everybody um, that had, they brought out Mets, Mitsui and Joe and, and Posada was there and Tito, they, everyone was there. Everyone was there. And I was in the tunnel waiting to go out to interview Jeter, right? This is the ninth inning when David Robertson blows the game 
and 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 I'm standing with Joe Tory, and these are little things that you would know, but I'm standing with Tory and Pennant and Matsui and Mo and uh, and uh, and Joe. As soon as it happens, his face doesn't change, and he says, "Mo, get up." get warm. And so we're all there and Mariano's you know, pretending he's getting up to go in. But then after they tied it, gee, I'm figuring, you know what, he's going to get another at bat. Oh my God, he's going to get another at bat. And you know, and I'm down in the tunnel with Joe and all of the core four and we're standing there and we're like laughing. And then Joe says, of course, of, of course, it was so moving. And he was so emotional that day. He lost his batting gloves at the beginning. It was the only day I've ever seen Derek Jeter to totally not buttoned up. He couldn't find his batting gloves. He went and I know that before the game, he went into the, um, one, into one of the, um, in the bathroom and cried. Um, it was very tough for him, very tough for him. And I know after the game, I've never seen his mother cry in 20 years. We were all very close to Dottie and, and Dr. Charles. And she was there and it was the only time she's a tough lady, wonderful lady. And I'd never seen her cry. And it was then, and it was just a remarkable, remarkable uh, day. Um, but the game that I was thinking of in Fenway Park, Jeter would have not played another game had it not been that the Yankees were going to Boston. He said, I owe it to them. And he, and he said, it's only Boston, only Boston because, and they showed him, oh my goodness, did they brawl the red carpet? Everybody came, Bobby Orr came, or I mean, the whole world came, Brady came. I mean, it was just an extraordinary, extraordinary day. They gave him a piece of the wall that had his number in it. Um, that was also the day that um, Bernie came and played, take me out to the ball game and everybody in the stands, Boston, they were holding hands and, and swaying back and forth and saying with Bernie Williams in the middle of the field at Fenway Park because it was Jeter's last game. And uh, the picture I was referring to, um, I waited till everybody talked to him. And because and I said, I want to be last. And he said, OK, because <laughs> I've known him since he was 18. And he gave the last interview to me. And at the end, he hugs me. And I all I could think of to say was, well done, my friend, just well done. And it was, you know, I get still very emotional about, you know, when you watch someone's entire career, John Sterling called every hit Derek Jeter ever had, every single one. Yeah, that's right. Every save of Mariano's. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to watch someone from the time they're 18 till the time they're 40 and see everything and watch it, watch it happen. And then it's over. And I don't think we'll ever have those days, you know, I won't see it, but I'm sure there'll be another group, but it won't be like this. That was, that was an extraordinary, extraordinary group. It was, and it's been, it's been rough for the Yankees ever since. And it's been a difficult season. They took a hard loss last night against the Rays. And well, they got two new parts, so they finally yes. got in there. But this is um, it's a it's a different game, Max. They play it differently, and um, different things are important. And it's um, you know, it's ju it's just different. It's just different. Let's see how things pan out with Gallo and Rizzo. I know Yankee fans are stoked to have them a part of the team now. And we'll see what happens. But most importantly, I think, would there ever be a 30-30 documentary or an autobiography that we can expect from you? Anything in the works? Because you're an important not piece of sports I, history. Not, well, not that not that uh, anyone has asked me to do so, no. No, no. That's, that's, that's another thing that has changed. There is um, 
really, as you get a little older, you become kind of invisible and it's all new and it's all, you know, whatever. So and nobody has approached me to do that. So <laughs> oh. no, they've moved on to younger people. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I know what I've done. And there are people out, like you out there that also know. Mm -hmm. It's, I think that's disgraceful that they haven't, but that's all right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, not like, fair though. They but start doing documentaries on you and stuff. That means it's over. I'm not quite, okay. I'm not quite ready to, to be over yet. Mm -hmm. Well, they did the 30 for 30 for Mike and the Mad Dog and Chris is still going at Sirius XM. Well, but it's, but it's Mike and the Mad Dog. Yeah. There will never be another thing like Mike and the Mad Dog. That was once to me, that was once in a life, lifetime lightning and thunder that struck and stayed for 20 years. That's never going to happen again. Yeah. Right? And that is just for that. That was the perfect time, the perfect place. And they were the perfect people um, to do it together. And, you know, that doesn't stay because the world changes. Mm -hmm. You know, so the people that grew up um, on Mike and the Mad Dog are now not listening to that kind of sport. You know, they're not doing that anymore because they've got lives. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's have lives and kids and grandkids and you can't sit all afternoon and listen to Mike and the Mad Dog. So it's now a different generation and they want to hear something else. But Mike and the Mad Dog might be as important um, a show as ever was on. The people like Don Imus was like the first of it way back in the 70s. There are, there are people that mark um, change in an industry and they're always the first because after Imus was Howard Stern and Opie and Anthony and all these people but it was always Imus and Mike and the Mad Dog there's a lot of duos now none of them are Mike and the Mad Dog no you got that right it was once in a lifetime what are some of your predictions for the rest of the season especially with the trade deadline today do you think they make a move for a pitcher um, I know they're trying. They're not, they're not done. They, if they're done, it's not because they want to be done. Um, there were all kinds of moves about maybe getting a shortstop, um, moving Glaber back to second um, where he probably belongs and, you know, and doing it that way. Um, I, I, I think getting Gallo uh, Rizzo, by the way, is as much about, and by the way, Anthony Rizzo is everything right about baseball, everything. I mean, he is the kind of guy that you would, you know, bring, you'd bring home to your parents. If you were a girl, you'd want as your brother, you'd want Anthony Rizzo was one of the best people on this earth. And I've only met him a couple of times, but uh, when I have what, what I've, I've given him awards for what he's done, it's quite extraordinary. And he'll be fine. He'll be wonderful here for this year. His, his wife is from Connecticut and he's got a lot of um, family in the New York area. He's going to be wonderful here. So as soon as they went to, to get a first baseman, then you knew that DJ was going back to second. So Glaber is going to stay at first. And by the way, um, here's what here's what was the problem for the beginning of the season. And I know people have gotten down on Brett Gardner, Ruggio Dorr for not hitting, et cetera. This is not what they were supposed to do. Brett Gardner was supposed to be here be a fourth or a fifth outfielder, probably a fourth outfielder. It is not Brett Gardner's fault that Aaron Hicks gets hurt every year. And Brett Gardner, Brett Gardner has played as many games as has Aaron Judge. I mean, that is wrong. He's 38 years old I and mean, he's doing the best he can. I mean, he's not supposed to do that. Ruggie Odor was supposed to be a lefty bat off the bench, come in, play twice a week and, you know, give LeMahieu a day, give, give uh, Glaber a day. You'd move Rochelle to, to short and then Ruggie could play third or LeMahieu could play third and Ruggie could play second. That's how it was supposed to happen. They weren't supposed to be 
the two lefties on this team. No. <laughs> I mean, they're not O'Neill and Giambi. I mean, I don't understand why people are getting on these guys. Um, I think for what they've done, for what they've had, and people going in and out, and Stanton never playing the field, and Judge on his load management, I think they've done a remarkable job to just stay in this. Um, they need they need a starting pitcher, mm-hmm. and they need the back of this bullpen to pitch like the back of this bullpen, and the um, and that's another thing. And injuries happen to everybody, and I'm not saying that that's why. Mm-hmm. Um, Zach Britton hasn't pitched all year. It's going to take him a while to get there. Uh, Darren O'Day was supposed to be in the back of that bullpen. He didn't pitch all year and now he's gone. So two big pieces, big pieces. Um, I I think Loisaga has done remarkably well considering what he was last year and the year before and the fact that he's what, 24, 25? Mm -hmm. You got a pitcher now. Um, They were lucky and they, if anybody tells you that they thought Lucas Lifke was going to do this, they're lying since the guy hadn't pitched in six years. Um, I think the people that they've had to count on have done remarkably well. They've also, there are some that have done remarkably poorly and you are going to have to have pitchers get through. You you have to, when the most consistent pitcher on your staff right now, right now, the most consistent pitcher is Jordan Montgomery and Jamison Tyone. Jamison Tyone is the project. Jamison Tyone is not supposed to be the guy you look to to say, okay, and now he has done exactly what the Yankees thought he was going to do. That with tweaking the um, the the um, the wind up a little bit and tweaking what he's doing, and now he's morphed into both uh, <clears throat> the pitcher he was in Pittsburgh, which was quite something, got hurt all the time, and what the Yankees want him to do. So now he's both, and he's now starting to give you innings. Um, I, I really believe that Garrett Cole is good enough that he is going to figure this out. You know, with or with whatever's going on with him, he's going to have to figure it out. Yeah. And, you know, and everybody has those things. And Chapman is going to have to figure it out. And um, if Garrett Cole is not Garrett Cole and uh, Araldus Chapman is not Araldus Chapman, forget the season anyway. Because it's, yeah. But I think they will. I think they're pushing it. I think this is going to give this team. I know everybody's really excited that these two guys are walking in the door. Yeah. I know they are. And by the way, just anybody that's listening and is going to concentrate on Joey Gallo and his strikeouts, he's on base 40% of the time. Got it? 40. 40. I don't care how he gets there. It doesn't, you know, he does strike out. Yes, he does. But he also walks. He really is one of those true three players. Mm-hmm. Strikeout, um, strikeout, walk, or, or home run where the ball, you know, fielder doesn't hit the, doesn't touch the ball. By the way, um, better arm than Aaron Judge. Um ahead of Aaron Judge in um, throwing runners out at the plate. He's an extraordinary athlete. He steals bases. Um, they got something here, and they have him for another year. Rizzo's a rental, but Joey Gallo is not. Yeah. The, I think as long as Cole and Chapman shape up, I think the Yankees are going to be in a good place. Now, all you got to do is get – all you got to do is get there. As Joe Torre used to say, it's all a crapshoot once you get into the playoffs. And all they got to do is get there. Garrett Cole figures it out. He's game one, and we go on to the series, and all will be right with the world. Yes. And let's, and <laughs> let's not, hope that. Or not. Yeah. <laughs> let's hope that happens. If not, we'll be looking forward to the next season here. And Susan Waldman, is there anything else you love to tell my audience here today? Um, I think I've covered <laughs> just about everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, um, I want everybody to know um, – we're really trying with these remote broadcasts. It's, it's awful. It's really awful. Um, but now I know I can do anything because I called a no hitter from my house. 
and it's just it's it's tough and when people talk about when john misses uh what's happening to radio is really appalling and nobody seems to care and and every radio announcer you know is tired of it and sick of it and we're trying so hard to deliver a good product but it, you know you're you're at the mercy of some cameraman in some city that you don't know and um some are better than others <laughs> there's no problem in boston um but you can't you can't see i mean and if you try and call a base just try it try and call a baseball game off of what you're seeing on your television you can't see who scored. You can't see where the ball is. You can't see if there's a shift. You can't see where you will see where the ball lands, but that's all. You won't see where the runner is. It's really, really hard. And I think every radio announcer who does baseball in this country should just stop for a minute, take a deep breath and give themselves a gold star in the middle of their forehead because every one of us are really trying to make it a good product. And um, I know the fans care and it's really too bad that we care more than baseball and that's important that's why we respect you because you do care that's it's important well the fans do i mean it's yeah they do too that your radio broadcast more than tv because you can see it your radio broadcasters and radio personalities are your conduits from the team to the fan and if i can't see and i can't talk to somebody how do i know all I know is what we see on those stupid Zooms. And that's, you know, you can't follow up. You can't ask another question. You can't, and they don't give you, you know, think about the players. Players are sitting in a room looking into a camera. They don't know who they're talking to. No. <laughs> I mean, you can see like an, on a Zoom, you can see one person when the person starts to talk. So yesterday, Garrett Cole is, is sitting, looking at an, at an iPad or a computer, just him on the screen until... For example, Meredith unmute. You hear that all the time on the Zooms. Meredith unmute. Then he can see Meredith. That's all. He doesn't know who else is sitting there. He doesn't know who's writing what down. It's all so stilted. And baseball is not like the other sports. No. You have to have a connection. It's a human connection. You know, in football, it's different. You know, you love your quarterback and you know certain people. But you don't know the whole team. I mean, every fan, every Yankee fan in the world knows as much about Albert Abreu as he does about Garrett Cole. They, I mean, that's what it is. And the football team, you don't know who the third lineman is. No. <laughs> I mean, you might if you study it. But that's you know right. I mean. um, but it's, it's, it's different. So if I can't tell you what's on the expression of Garrett Cole when he went out and blew that game yesterday, because I'm not there. I can only see what I see on a Zoom. And he's you know, when you're in the clubhouse and talking to him, I can see his eyes. I can see the pain in his eyes. I can, but in a Zoom, you know, he says the right things, but I don't know what he's feeling. And that's the thing that fans lose. And that's the thing that I want everybody to know that we're really trying. And it's, I mean, I'm not complaining. I mean, I've got a job and I'm doing the best I can, but I, the fans lose in this. They really do. And it's, um, and it's not right. It's not right. And I hope it, I don't know when it's going to go back to normal. I don't know. I know it's not this year. Hopefully if there's playoffs, we'll get to travel. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's very unfortunate. Susan Wallman, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I had a great time talking with you and this was history and the listeners oh, do enjoy thanks. this. Thank you. Say hello to everybody at St. John's, my favorite place. I hope the gym still looks the same. If they've changed it, don't tell me. <laughs> it's alumni, right? Alumni. Uh, that, it's Carneseca Arena now. Oh, 
okay. Oh, that's okay. That's a change you can make. Yes. <laughs> All right, Carnesecca Arena. Yes, yeah, it's a wonderful place. I have wonderful memories there. Yes, and I didn't even know that. So I'm St. John's yeah, fans are happy. You weren't even born. Your parents probably were. Yeah, no. <laughs> they were you know, in high school somewhere. But uh, Max, thank you. This was delightful. I'm glad we got to be be together. Yes, I want you to enjoy the rest of your day, and let's go Yankees. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thanks a lot. Yes. Bye, Susan. Hi, Max. Thank yes. you. Yes.